Well, I'm in over my head. No one told me. Trying to keep my footprint small was harder than I thought it could be. I'm in over my head. What do I really need? Trying to save the planet. Oh, will someone please save me? Trying to save the planet. Oh, will someone please save me? Welcome to In Over My Head. I'm Michael Bartz. My guest today is Dr. Werner Antweiler. Werner is an associate professor in the Saunders School of Business at the University of British Columbia. He chairs the Strategy and Business Economics Division, as well as being an associate editor for the Resource and Energy Economics Journal. His areas of research include environmental economics and management, as well as energy and electricity economics. Well, welcome to In Over My Head, Dr. Antweiler. Well, uh, thank you for having me, Michael. So I brought you on to talk a bit about the economics of sustainable transportation. Because it's one thing to say that we need more electric cars on the road or increased public transportation to lower emissions. But my hunch is that implementing these changes is not that simple. So from an economic perspective, what factors do we need to consider when looking at cutting emissions from urban transportation? Well, transportation is always a system. Basically, once you start changing things in one place, you have to start changing things in other places as well. When it comes to electric vehicles, we're basically looking at a transition from, uh, well, gasoline-driven systems to electric system. That means we have to get infrastructure in place that people can actually go and charge their cars. Today, they go and drive their internal combustion engine vehicles to gas stations. But when it comes to electricity, uh, that model may not be really ideal because it takes some longer time to charge uh, electric vehicle than it uh, takes to refuel a car. So we need different infrastructure, ideally charging stations at home or near where people live and work. Okay. Um, yeah, we could talk a bit about that. So what sort of changes would have to take place to, to get more of that infrastructure? Yeah, um, of course, in addition to the infrastructure, there's one overarching theme too about the electricity that we use to power our electric vehicles. And this transition, of course, really is uh, predicated on the assumption that we have clean electricity. If you don't have clean electricity, then we, we're not really getting these environmental gains that we're hoping. Where it uh, makes sense is places like British Columbia and Quebec and Manitoba, where we have a clean hydro. And, of course, it's much more problematic in jurisdictions, especially in the United States, where uh, the electricity still relies heavily on coal. So the transition basically has to go hand in hand with not only changing our, our vehicle fleet, but also changing our generator fleet that is actually having sources of electricity that are reliably clean. Okay. And, and so would you say that of maybe the two things, the infrastructure and how we get our electricity, which would have the biggest impact on lowering our greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, actually both. So when you look at the current carbon dioxide emissions, you see that there are two major contributors. One is power generation. And all the countries in the world that still rely on coal, they are contributing hugely to our CO2 problem. So cleaning our electricity generation is really the number one priority. Getting rid of coal, replacing it with renewable energy, ideally, or at least with cleaner natural gas as a stepping stone towards fully clean technologies. So this is really the number one change we need to make. And that is a bigger task in jurisdictions like the United States and China than it is in Canada, where we already have a relatively clean supply of electricity. But then when you look at the other major sources of emissions, transportation is really one of the other really major contributors. And that means we kind of have to look carefully at where within transportation decarbonization is easy and where it's hard. Where it's easy is when it comes to light-duty vehicles, passenger vehicles. Where it's hard is when it concerns trucks or even trains, ships and planes. And they are really hard to change because they need a lot of power 
And currently, batteries are just not ideal for these applications. But they are ideal for light-duty vehicles. Let's go with the, with the difficult one first. How would you recommend that we improve the, the trucks and other transport systems to have them have lower emissions? Now, the, the long run of this requires innovation. There is major discussion about hydrogen as a possible solution, especially in uh, aviation. When it comes to shipping, we'll probably see natural gas as, a, as an easier stepping stone towards cleaner solutions, also because it gets rid of sulfur dioxide emissions from dirty bunker fuel. So we'll look at all the options over time, but it's basically the market that needs to decide which option is the right one. While today, maybe hydrogen sounds good, but it really has to be driven by the prices in the market. Once you put a price on carbon emissions, then the technology that will emerge will be the one that offers the most efficient, the cheapest solution to our technological needs that will correspond to that carbon price. So really what we need at this point is a lot of innovation. We're not there yet to really look at the decarbonization, say, of aviation, because these technologies aren't really there. We don't have a clean supply of hydrogen, for example. If you haven't got the hydrogen turbines that planes would need to fly using hydrogen, that is all 15, 20 years down the road. So when we're looking at the electrification of mobility, in the short term, it really just means uh, passenger vehicles and light trucks. Okay, let's talk about policy, because I feel like that's another area that also has an impact on making these changes happen. Because if you look at, say, Ontario, with them phasing out their coal plants, that was a policy thing. It wasn't just by choice. So can you maybe speak to some of the policy implications when we're looking at reducing our emissions from transportation? Yeah, so they're on on several sides. You mentioned essentially the uh, cleaning up of the electricity grid in Ontario. Of course, there is a price for this. And when the government's changed, our policies changed. We don't see currently any new development of renewable portfolio in Ontario. But what is really remarkable is that policy really needs to be driven by the market in terms of the technological choices. And the governments have to just set the overall parameters right, which is putting a price on carbon. When governments start picking technologies and saying, okay, we want to have this amount of wind, we want to have this amount of solar, and we want to have this amount of something else, then it gets uh, problematic because it's not a market-driven outcome, but it's actually driven by political choices. And they're always subject to all kinds of interference, lobbying, and they are less efficient than when we just leave it to the market to figure out where the clean energy will come from. So policy that is essentially the most suitable is one that really puts the price on the pollution and lets then all the companies figure out that can provide solutions on what is the best and the cheapest option to deliver that clean supply of electricity. So when it comes to subsidies, I always put a big question mark behind many of them because they're really hard to target right. It's much easier to actually start basically with what economists would call the first best policy, which is putting the price on the pollution and then letting the market figure out which technology emerges as a winner. Yeah, and that makes sense because they're going to be incentivized to make the changes that work best for them in order to maximize their efficiency. And so you talked about making these changes in different countries. Let's say the U.S. is more difficult. Where does the international side of things come into the equation? Because some countries might be polluting more, so... Canada might be less incentivized to make these changes because another country is polluting. So can you comment on that? Yeah, this is one of the thorniest issues when it comes to climate change policy. We have some countries that are leaders and innovators and others that are lagging and are following and are way behind where they need to go. All the countries that still rely on coal are a part of the problem. And so in those cases, for example, if you look at the United States, We have a division between the Western interconnection, which is relatively clean, and the Eastern interconnection, which is relatively dirty because it still relies heavily on coal. 
So it makes a lot of sense to adopt electric vehicles in the western part of the country, and it makes much less sense in the eastern part. And it will actually take some time to change and means uh, really that we have to lower the dependence on coal. And when I look internationally at places like China, of course, they have been increasing their utilization of coal tremendously over the last 20 years. And so they have become the, the largest emitter in the world as a result. So they have a long way to go to lessen their dependence on coal. In fact, they're using, basically introducing electric vehicles. Well, if you generate 60% of your electricity from coal, you're not really solving the problem with uh, the electrification. So what really has to come first is cleaning up the electricity supply. That is the precondition for a successful electrification of mobility. Okay. So yeah, we can talk a bit more about that. So in that regard, what are some barriers to getting off of coal? Yeah, of course, it all comes down to what are the alternatives that can be integrated into the electricity grid. Essentially, when you look at China, they are also uh, massively rolling out renewables. They're also massively looking at nuclear, which is basically something that most other countries do not look at because nuclear has been particularly expensive and been particularly problematic in uh, many different ways. So, But China essentially is at a turning point. If they want to reduce their dependence on coal, they need what economists would call base load. That is power that is on 24-7 and can be relied upon to power most of the needs the same way that coal does today. And nuclear is a part of the mix in China, and they will need to scale that up significantly if they actually want to reduce their dependence on coal. Because the problem with renewables is that they are not close to where the demand is. And so they have to build a very significant amount of transmission lines to bring renewable energy from the western part of the country to the coast. And that is uh, phenomenally expensive. So that is simply one of the constraints we're, uh, we're facing with the cleaning up of electricity. When you're looking at renewable energy, they're not necessarily close to where the energy is needed in the big cities. So building the infrastructure that brings the electricity from where it can be produced to where it is consumed, that is one of the major challenges. And that is the reason why China is also looking at nuclear as part of their answer towards lessening their dependence on coal. And of course, the other major stepping stone in moving towards a lower carbon footprint is the use of natural gas. That means countries that actually do not have a abundant supply of natural gas, they have to import it, mostly through pipelines or through liquefied natural gas. And that is part of what we have been seeing as a trend in recent years, a significant scaling up of production and distribution of liquefied natural gas, because countries that are shifting towards renewables also need backup power. And that means having fast ramping peak load generators that rely on natural gas. So there's a complementarity in terms of moving towards renewables and requiring actually natural gas to support it, at least for some time until we have maybe grid scale electricity storage through different battery systems. Yeah, no, it's clearly a very complex issue. Um, That's very helpful. Thank you. Let's quick talk about the infrastructure, maybe not so much about getting the energy that we need, but perhaps just the infrastructure, like you talked about charging stations. Is there anything that you could see improving the situation as far as how our cities are designed, how our roads are designed, how people get around, specifically with transportation? Yes, actually, this is part of my ongoing research. In fact, uh, I've been looking at the difficulties that municipalities have providing infrastructure for electric vehicle charging. Most people actually prefer charging their vehicles at home and not having an intermediary actually put an extra price on the electricity. The cheapest place to charge in most instances will be the EV owner's home because then they can tap into the electricity at their own cost and not actually have to pay a charging network for providing the service. 
but that means having a charging station, and that is where it gets difficult. There are several groups of EV owners that will face challenges. First among them are people who have their detached homes but only have on-street parking. So they don't have a dedicated parking space or garage in which you could install a charging station. So when you have on-street parking where you don't have a fixed parking spot, how actually do you get electricity to your car? And that is where municipalities need to get on the plan, where they have to actually develop uh, charging solutions in partnership with companies that can provide those that actually put a lot of charging stations at the curb site of uh, where people park their vehicles. And also then actually providing a way to actually keep the cost of intermediation low because, again, when you make it too expensive, it reduces the incentive to actually switch to electric vehicles. So that's the first group. The second group is people who live in, in rental buildings. So where your landlord decides what infrastructure goes into the building. And landlords don't necessarily have any incentives to do that. And even though EV owners would like to charge their vehicles, but they can't force a landlord to put in the infrastructure. So here, the problem is really the building code that for new buildings, we can mandate that charging stations and solutions are put into these new buildings. Of course, then the difficult part is how do we retrofit the existing buildings? And that is often very costly because the buildings weren't designed to deliver electricity to parking stalls. A very similar group are people who live in strata buildings like myself. And it took significant effort actually to bring charging solutions into my own building. I happened to be on the strata council of my, my strata, so I was able to help bring about that process. But it's really difficult. It requires a lot of expertise. And again, if you're looking at an older building, it means retrofitting, which actually very quickly adds to the cost of bringing a charging station to an individual parking stall in a parkade. But it's doable, but it's not cheap, and that means governments need to help in two significant ways. One is they need to overcome legal obstacles. For example, strata corporations shouldn't be able to turn down requests for individuals to put in charging stations at their own cost. And so these obstacles need to be removed. At the same time, governments do provide often quite generous incentives to put in charging stations. Here in British Columbia, we have a program. There are similar programs in other jurisdictions, as well as at the federal level. And they will help buildings actually reduce their own cost and basically bootstrap the process of bringing electric vehicles to current owners of internal combustion engine vehicles. People will not buy EVs if they can charge them reliably and conveniently. And that is the crux of the matter. The whole transition to electric vehicles is uh, predicated on the assumption that we can go and charge them. And if uh, people find it difficult, they will not change over to electric vehicles. So it's even more important that we help bring about charging solutions than subsidizing EV purchases. Because, again, you won't buy an EV unless you can charge it. And no amount of EV subsidy is going to make you buy an EV if you cannot charge it. And so the first other problem we have to solve is on the charging side and not of the side of incentivizing EV purchases. You know, and that makes a lot of sense because when I think of, you, know, you just go buy an electric car and you just plug it in. And most people where I live, they have a garage, they have lots of power. So yeah, I never thought about people in apartments or places where you would have to install extra electrical outlets. So that makes a lot of sense. But to me, it sounds like implementing those changes is, is probably overall in the grand scheme of things, an easier win, would you say? Like it's easier to implement? I mean, it's doable. It requires a lot of technological solutions. And one issue that I haven't mentioned is that many buildings also have capacity constraints. So buildings weren't designed for delivering a lot of electricity for charging electric vehicles. So they were designed for delivering electricity for you know, the appliances people run in their homes and, and the lighting and the heating. But they were not designed to deliver the extra electricity for charging cars. So a lot needs to change on the infrastructure side. Also, what I would call upstream now outside the individual home. And that means the utilities actually have to put an infrastructure that manages this charging effectively. 
for example, if now we're all driving EVs and we're coming home in the afternoon, we all plug in our cars and we charge all at the same time, that's going to put a lot of strain on the electricity grid. So we need actually solutions from the utilities that actually incentivize maybe stretching out the charging over the entire night, if possible, and basically reducing the load on our grid at peak times. So we have to see that new pricing systems need to be put into place, such as time of use pricing or other mechanisms that will allow the utilities to manage the load that we will be putting on the grid. And we're not actually ending in a situation where we're putting huge demands on a short time period onto the grid that the grid can deliver. Whereas if you were to spread out the charging of cars would make it much easier on the grid to accommodate the electricity needs for EVs. So what would you imagine the solution to that is? Is that a regulation where you charge your car at a certain time? Or is it like you talked about the market where you're incentivizing people to charge at work or they have stations that they can go to at a coffee shop or something? Yeah, the right solution is always to use the market. And here the pricing system would be ideal. So EV owners will probably be offered a choice that they can get uh, over a lower rate if they are willing to subscribe to a time of use pricing for the EV charging so that they can put the EV charging into the night when the demand on the electricity grid is lower than during the day and especially the afternoon and early evening. So these mechanisms will be put into place that will essentially incentivize people to make informed choices and they will be able to program the chargers to do exactly that and basically respond to the prices. Many uh, chargers are already smart chargers that have built-in software that can recognize the prices in the electricity grid and respond with their charging accordingly. So these smart solutions, they will come with the changes that we need, especially time-of-use pricing or uh, there are other uh, mechanisms such as critical peak pricing that electric utilities also look at to manage excess demand at uh, certain times. Um, are there any places that you know of, countries or cities, that are doing really well in this regard as far as implementing that infrastructure for charging? Yeah, there are some that are experimenting. Uh, for example, the City of London in the United Kingdom has been working together with a company called Ubitricity, which is now owned by Shell, to deploy charging solutions using lampposts, street lighting lampposts. So basically, there is an electricity grid that's already built into our street space. And the idea is to essentially put plugs into the lighting posts so that people can go and charge their cars. Not necessarily very fast, but there's enough power to charge quite a number of cars that otherwise wouldn't have an option. So how can we take our existing infrastructure and adapt it to the future charging needs? And this is where I think a lot of cities will have to look at building this infrastructure because, again, in many cities around the world, people do not have their own parking space. They only have public parking that they can access, uh, on-street parking uh, that is not dedicated to an individual owner. And that means that the cities really have to be a major player in bringing about the infrastructure that is needed for this EV transition. Because especially in urban places, the ownership issue is the critical problem to address because most people, in particular in Europe, don't own their own homes, but they rent. And uh, that comes back to the earlier problem I mentioned. If you're renting a building and you don't have a dedicated parking space or you have only on-street parking, you're always ending up in the spot that getting an EV is not the smart choice unless you have a reliable way, a convenient way of charging it. And that is the fundamental obstacle we need to address because without it, we're going to get stuck with the EV transition. There is basically the low-hanging fruit, the early adopters that can do it because they have dedicated parking spaces that they own that they can put chargers in. And then we're running against that wall and we cannot move further unless we are building that infrastructure, this public infrastructure that is needed. 
So do you see that change of getting all these charging stations? Do you see that happening in time when everyone should be driving EVs? Well, under current political constellations, I don't see it happening yet. The decisions haven't been made that would point in that direction. Because it's actually, it costs money. And basically, then you have to go and ask, who's going to pay for it? Uh, can you actually attribute the cost to individual EV owners? Basically, uh, if you own a car, you should bear the cost of the infrastructure, as opposed to if you're walking or cycling or taking public transit, then you should not. So this actually comes back to a question about, should it be the average taxpayer who pays for everything, or should it be the users of the motor vehicles or the electric vehicles who pay for the infrastructure? And I would make a strong case that, yes, we should actually put the cost on the owners of EVs, because on the other hand, we also want to incentivize people actually moving away from individualized transportation, and ideally, especially in dense urban areas, rely a lot more on public transit. And when they need a car, and as we all do at times, there are other options from networks of uh, rental vehicles or fleets of, like uh, here in, in Vancouver, we have Evo and uh, that used to be Car2Go and other such networks that allow people to actually get a car when they need it in urban spaces, but not own a car and have to park it and use space and have all the other implications of car ownership. So uh, we see a lot of younger people actually not buying cars and say, well, I use a combination of transportation uh, using public transit and cycling. And when I need a car, I can go and hop into uh, an Evo or, or another pay-as-you-go car. And that is maybe the new future of mobility, especially in urban areas. We also have already too many cars in our cities. If you look at the congestion we have, many cities have been thinking about congestion pricing and basically putting a higher price on using individualized mobility. And all that points to we need a solution that isn't just looking at EVs as a, the fix-all for our environmental problems, but it needs to be part of a system-wide solution. And that system-wide solution must involve building out our network of public transit, making it more rapid where it's needed uh, as a more rapid form of transportation, but also building out bike lanes and building infrastructure that allows people to access other modes of transportation. Are those changes perhaps easier to implement than, let's say, outfitting everyone with EVs? Yes, that is a big, big political question. On one hand, we have a lot of people who feel very invested in individualized mobility. It, it has been the, uh, the dominant political theme from the 50s and 60s on that individual mobility was regarded as a high political goal, uh, very similar to uh, owning homes. And moving away from this and moving to a model that involves more public transportation is hard and faces political opposition. If you look around the world, it's a lot easier in places that never really moved away from public transportation. Many European cities have a much better built out uh, infrastructure when it comes to public transportation than we have here in North America. The love of the car was basically the dominant theme for many decades in the 20th century. And now we're facing the reality of climate change and we're facing the reality of denser cities. And the problem that we're moving away from the, uh, the low density uh, structures of many places, uh, where, especially in places like Vancouver, where you know, we cannot basically accommodate more houses because there is no space to build them on. So urban sprawl basically went along with the extended use of uh, individual mobility. And that is not a sustainable model because as uh, cities are sprawling, people are driving longer and longer distances between home and work. And all that has contributed to our problem that we're facing today, which is a very high carbon dioxide footprint from individual mobility. It uh, in the end comes down to one key question. When we look at the use of cars, what is the true cost of driving cars? What's the social cost of driving a car? 
And we actually see that the, the cost of using cars is not just the pollution they cause, but it's also the congestion, the time it takes. It's also the road accidents and the injuries and fatalities that go along with individual car use. So these are all costs that we need to look at. I haven't even mentioned parking and the high cost of the free parking we have in cities and the land use that goes along with this parking. All of that actually has repercussions throughout our economy. And what we need to do is putting the right price on driving, which is basically, as economists would put it, internalizing all the externalities, all the, uh, the negative effects from driving. And so motorists, whether electric or fueling internal combustion engines, should pay the full price of their activity. And once you have uh, the right price on this that includes all these social costs, then people make better informed choices when you compare alternative modes of transportation, like public transit or cycling or walking, to driving a car. So what cities need to do is really look very carefully at where they are currently actually subsidizing the use of cars, whether it's through parking space, whether it's by not putting a price on congestion and all the emissions that come with congestion. There are options that economists have been advocating for a long time, like congestion pricing or proper fees on parking that reflect the scarcity of parking in a lot of places. All this can be done by using the right economic instruments. And unfortunately, they're not an easy political sell in many instances. And that's a good point, because if something is wonderfully fantastic, like the expression is, perfect is the enemy of good. If something is amazing, but there's no way you're going to get it put through, then there's almost no point in even trying that. So what are some, maybe some easier implementations that we could get through? Yeah, various regulations can be put into place that sort of mimic what economists would otherwise call the first best solution, which is putting the price on the negative externality. But if that's not possible, well, we actually should do two things. First is, can we make it possible on the first best policy by making it fair? Often the key concern is that, say, if you introduce congestion pricing or a carbon tax, is it fair? You've got to recycle the revenue and give it back to people rather than actually using it as revenue for governments. So when you actually put these prices on these activities, make sure that it isn't actually going into some anonymous government coffer, but instead recycle the money and give it back to people as the federal government has done with their carbon price and the federal backstop, where the money is fully given back to households on a per capita basis. That is the way to go to make sure that people aren't worse off from these policies. So first, address the fairness issue when it comes to these ideal policies. But if you can't do those, then the second best policies, mostly regulation, need to be very targeted to be effective. For example, when it comes to urban space, now we kind of need to regulate the land use, which is parking space. Now, here there are many very smart ways to actually improve things. For example, in the building code, we still have requirements to have parking spaces in each building. It makes uh, a lot more sense to actually get rid of some of these requirements and instead let the market decide if there is parking in the building or not. Now, if a developer figures out, well, you only need like a parking space for every second unit because other people, uh, they want to use transit and they don't want to own a car, then why do we make them pay for having a parking spot in their new building when that actually adds extra cost? So let the market again work and actually remove some of the unhelpful mandates that are currently still in the building code. And on the other hand, make it more expensive to use things that shouldn't be free, for example, parking. In most instances, parking is using up space, and that space could be used for you know, building new homes. And so we should be putting a fair price on parking. It should not be free. Whenever there is something free, it's getting overused. And so when it comes to where governments knowingly or unknowingly subsidize activities like parking, we have to rethink how we do it and basically make sure that these activities actually face a full social cost of what is involved by this activity, like parking cars in a public space. So lastly, 
Um, this show is about empowering citizens to take informed action on climate change. In your opinion, what can citizens do now to ensure that these appropriate changes we've been talking about are made to urban transportation so that it's part of the climate solution? Yeah, we need uh, the policies that make it happen. There is no free lunch here. When it comes to infrastructure, somebody has to pay for it and governments have to decide who to pay for these investments. In many instances, it's a jurisdictional issue. Municipalities, for example, struggle with putting in infrastructure because they don't have budgets for that. They don't have the tax base to do it right, and they have to struggle finding uh, revenues through kind of very odd instruments, as we have seen here in Vancouver. You can't just use property taxes for this. It needs to have other instruments as well. That means we have to get the cooperation from the provincial and federal level to make it happen. Essentially, all the jurisdictions have to come together to have a plan that they work together rather than each jurisdiction doing their thing and not really caring about what the other jurisdiction is doing. So this cooperation is really essential to have essentially a master plan of the electrification of mobility that looks at all the infrastructure needs that we have from the municipal level to where governments need to get involved, say building, for example, rapid transit and subways where it's needed here in Vancouver. And so a variety of other things. We basically need to look at where all these policies have to come together. And that means the different jurisdictions have to come to sit at the same table and discuss how they will do that. So for individuals wanting to make a change, is it just about electing the right people in power or the right politicians to make those changes? Well, in many instances, it is. Uh, No change will happen unless there is a political mandate to enact those changes. And especially where it means uh, significant investments, governments have to be willing to raise the money for it. All right. I think we will end it there. So that's been very helpful. Um, Thank you so much for your time, Werner. It's been my pleasure talking to you. Well, that was my talk with Professor Antweiler. Clearly, sustainable transportation is a very complex issue, and I appreciate his market-driven approach to solutions. I also found his work on barriers to EV charging fascinating. But we've also learned that driving is just one part of the solution, and we still need to prioritize public and active transportation. Well, that's all for me. I'm Michael Bartz. Here's to feeling a little less in over our head when it comes to saving the planet. We'll see you again soon. In Over My Head was produced and hosted by Michael Bartz. Original theme song by Gabriel Thane. If you would like to get in touch with us, please email info at inovermyheadpodcast.com. Special thanks to Tell a Story Hive for making this show possible. I'm trying to save the planet. Oh, will someone please save me?